Gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, once again we pause to be reminded of the fact that we, when we open up the Bible, we come to Your Holy Word. And so, Father, remove distractions from us. Uh, Lord, help us to not just go through the motions or in just um, listening to another message, but that it would truly be something that we embrace and we welcome into our hearts by the power of Your Spirit and by Your grace. Help us to approach Your Word with reverence. Help us to be eager listeners, soft and tender to Your Word. Help us to be teachable people to what You would have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34 is our passage for this morning. Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. Let me read this text for us. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is God's word. I've titled this message, Good News in Bad Times. Good news in bad times. We all need good news in uncertain and tumultuous times, don't we? Especially those in which we're living um, today. Well, this month, I'm sure many of you are aware that we celebrate something very special as Christians, the month of October. How many of you know what we celebrate during the month of October as believers? Is that... The Reformation. That's right. That's great. So many of you um, knew about that. It's great. Yeah, this month of October, Christians celebrate the special um, holiday, really, for us as believers, known as the Protestant Reformation, which in most people's opinions officially began on October the 31st, 1517, though there were events leading up to that particular event of Martin Luther. Um, pinning his 95 Theses to the door of the castle at Wittenberg. And the Protestant Reformation was just that. It was a protest against the corruption and against the exploitation of people by the Roman Catholic Church. For about a thousand years during the medieval and dark ages, the Roman Catholic Church had become a dominant tyrant, really, in the lives of people. And so God used, during that very unique period of time, key individuals to point people back to Scripture, back to the Word of God, back to the Bible. And make no mistake about it. Yes, imperfect men, but great men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others that came before them and during and after them really believed that the very Gospel was at stake. And thus... The souls of people were at stake. It was Martin Luther who said this, We are all beggars, spiritually speaking he meant. We are all beggars, and the church's treasure is the gospel. It's the gospel. It was this gospel that had been hidden under layer upon layer of Roman Catholic 
uh, interpretation, ecclesiastical tradition, church tradition of Roman Catholicism. The gospel had been hidden under the rubric of tradition after tradition, interpretation after interpretation. And so for these individuals, it was a return to the gospel. Removing all of that rubric of church tradition and erroneous interpretation and going beyond what stood written to show people the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, it was out of that monumental period of time, that unprecedented time in the church's history, that that five key themes or principles surfaced and became convictions of biblical Christianity, of the true Christian church. These five themes or principles came to be known in church history as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin term which means only or alone. And the five solas of the Reformation are these. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. That Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Sola Gratia, grace alone. The reality that salvation comes not by anything that we do, no works, but it's by God's divine favor, God's unmerited favor and blessing. Sola gratia. Sola fide. Faith alone. That salvation does not come by any of our works, but it's by faith alone, which is itself faith, a gift of God in the human heart. And then there's solus Christus. Christ alone. That Jesus Christ and nothing else and no one else is sufficient, is enough for salvation. That there is no other way under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved except through Christ alone. Solus Christus. And then finally, soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. That in all of life, For all of us who are creatures made in the image of God, the chief motivation in everything that we do for all of life, for salvation and sanctification, is God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria. These are the five solas of the Reformation. And this morning, if we were to expand on one of these through our study of the verses that I just read in our present passage, if we were to hang our thoughts on one of those solas, it would be Solus Christus. Christ alone. Because this passage is all about Christ. All about Christ. In fact, you might say that the single greatest thing that happened during the Reformation was a great return to the belief that Christ alone was enough for salvation. Solus Christus. And if a return to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ was needed during the Protestant Reformation, beloved, I submit to you this morning that this is the single greatest need of our day and age. That if there is to be a revival today in our country of biblical Christianity, then people must turn to Jesus, to Christ alone. People need to stop trusting in themselves People need to stop trusting in materialism. People need to stop trusting in their possessions. People need to stop trusting in money and property. People need to stop trusting, yes, even in politics and politicians and political parties and political platforms. We need to stop trusting in those things and begin to trust in Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. In fact, even the people of Jesus' day needed to hear this. 
during his day, the expectation for many in Jesus' day was that Jesus would be a sort of political deliverer. A conquering hero who would return the nation of Israel back to greatness in the world. A deliverer who would make Israel great again. That was something that happened during Jesus' day. They needed to hear this message too. And then there were the more radical people of Jesus' day. Much like in our day and age today. Whose goal was to destroy the structures of Rome and form a sort of utopian society where really, in essence, they would rule now Rome. One tyrant would take over in place of another. Same message in Jesus' day as well, wasn't it? For people to return to the reality of Christ being sufficient, that Christ was enough. And what was Jesus' message to the world then? as it would be to the world today. It is this. That the world doesn't need a political revolution. The USA doesn't need a political revolution. What the world and our country needs is a spiritual reformation. A spiritual transformation. And how would that happen? The only way that a spiritual transformation and reformation can happen, beloved, is through the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's how this can happen. And so this is what we want to focus on this morning, even in this particular text. Because here in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, we're reminded of the the centerpiece of the very gospel, the good news who is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded here of good news in bad times. Good news in bad times. So I want us to look at this passage really in two segments, okay? I want us to look first and foremost in the first part of verse 32 at the Lord's resolve. The resolve of our Lord really to die. The resolve of our Lord to die. We've all known determined people, haven't we? Maybe as you think of your lifetime, maybe you think of parents, your dad or your mom, or maybe siblings or people in a particular workplace or maybe in a school that you attended or whatever. We've all met determined people. People who no matter what you tell them, no matter what the obstacle that gets in front of them, These people will not be deterred from their goal, from their purpose. We've all met determined, resolved individuals. But I tell you this morning, no one, no one was ever more resolved, more determined as an individual than our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to see this together. Look at verse 32. God's Word says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Remember that Mark, more than any other gospel, is the gospel on the move. It's it's these words of immediately and the word and throughout the gospel of Mark that keeps the narrative going. And Mark's purpose with these words immediately and the word and over and over again, keeping the narrative moving, Mark's purpose is to get us to the cross of Christ. He wants to get us there immediately as soon as possible the foot of the cross so that we see the suffering servant there on the cross. And so they are moving in a direction heading towards Jerusalem, verse 32 tells us. 
Because that is where Jesus is going to die. And so the disciples and Jesus are making their way from the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they're going to make their their ascent up to Jerusalem, which sits some 2,500 feet above sea level. This is the, the where Jesus is headed. This is where he needs to get to. He's determined to get to. But please don't miss this. As they head to Jerusalem, it says this in verse 32. It says that Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Who is the them there? It's the 12, his 12 disciples. Only Mark mentions this particular detail here that jesus was going on ahead of them normally our lord walks with or alongside of his disciples they walk together but here notice full steam ahead the lord is leading the way and the sense of the imperfect tense that he's walking ahead of them is that he was continually walking on ahead of his disciples Full steam ahead, he's leading the charge to Jerusalem with great eagerness, with great anticipation, our Lord. Speaking of the Dodgers, which some of you don't even want me to mention this morning, I know. I remember attending my first Dodger game as a seven or eight year old. I I don't remember what exactly how old I was. But I remember my dad telling us that we had gotten free tickets through his work to go to the Dodger game. And I obviously I had come from Mexico and I was being adopted by a family here. So my, my aunt and uncle were adopting me as their own son. So I had never um, been to a Dodger game. I mean, I couldn't sleep the night before. I was so eager and so anticipating getting to the Dodger game. And then the next morning, I got up at the crack of dawn and we jumped in our car and we headed to the Dodger game. And I couldn't wait to get into the ballpark. It was an amazing sight for me to see. And as soon as we were able to get to a, a, a safe sidewalk, I started running ahead to the ticket line to make sure that we were in line to get into the Dodger game. There was this great eagerness, this great sense of anticipation. Now for me, that was to have fun, to see the Dodgers play. But that is the, the sense or the idea here that we see with our Lord Jesus going on ahead of his disciples. But the mind-blowing thing is that Jesus is not going to Jerusalem, beloved, to have fun for social interaction. He's eager to die on the cross for sinners. Wow. This he's doing, knowing full well what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And undoubtedly, he's already in deep meditation of what's to happen. He's already beginning to feel the agony of anticipation that will culminate in the Garden of Gethsemane, given his suffering and what he's about to undergo. Now watch this. All of this is happening. The Lord's haste, his charging forward ahead of them. And on the background of the disciples' Thinking is all are all the events that have transpired in the previous last few months, bringing greater opposition, greater hostility against our Lord. And now he's charging forward, headed for Jerusalem ahead of them. This moves the disciples in verse 32 to be amazed. It says that they were amazed as they watched Jesus charging forward. That word amazer was the same word that appeared back in Mark 10 verse 24. We're in response to Jesus asserting how hard it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It says that the disciples, in response to Jesus' words, were amazed at his words. 
And so there, they were amazed at Jesus' words. Here, they are amazed at his actions because they're the actions of a resolved, determined servant who won't be deterred, who won't be turned back from his purpose and his goal to die for sinners. Now, verse 32 also tells us, if you notice, of a second group of people. It says, and those who followed were fearful. This is a separate group than the twelve. This group was, were most likely Jews who were making their way to Jerusalem for the three famous yearly feasts. As many of you know, every year thousands of Jews and Gentile proselytes would make their way to Jerusalem for the three main Jewish feasts, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Passover feast. And what was the Passover feast but a, a commemoration of the amazing deliverance of the Israelites in Egypt? Of that great event when the angel of the Lord, upon seeing the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of the Israelites, would pass over their home and spare their firstborn child. And so it was in response to God's mercy during that time for His people that the Israelites were instructed every year to commemorate God's great deliverance and to do it in Jerusalem. There was mass sacrificing of animals. Mass sacrificing of lambs, commemorating that passing over of the homes of the Israelites. And the irony, of course, with all of this sacrificing of lambs taking place during these times, is that charging ahead of them is the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed or announced in John chapter 1. How ironic. This is the Passover lamb. After Christ dies, there's going to be no more need for other sacrifices to happen, according to the book of Hebrews. He's going to die once for all to pay for sins once for all for those who believe in him. And so it's most likely that this group, this second group who it says it were fearful, are pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for that Passover feast or these feasts. You see, they know of Jesus by now. They know of him. He's been ministering for more than three years, teaching, doing miracles. They know of the opposition. They know of the hostility against Jesus. These are tense times for those who follow Jesus closely or even for those who've known of Jesus from a distance. Tense times. And yet, what's our Lord doing? What's our Lord doing, beloved? He's in haste resolved, determined to go to Jerusalem. It's like he's going into the lion's den. He's going into the hornet's nest. And he's charging forward our suffering servant Savior to the cross. The religious leaders have reached the peak of their hostility against him. They made it very clear that they want to kill Jesus. They will not be content until Jesus is dead no matter how they do it. And illegally, from a human perspective, they will condemn him, as we'll see in the months ahead. And so in the face of all of this, what resolve by our Lord Jesus? What courage? Jesus knew what awaited him, and he still was moving forward, determined to head to Jerusalem. What courage by our Savior? Listen to J.C. Ryle, who comments the following about courage. Two types of courage. 
There are two kinds of courage, he writes. There is the courage, which is a kind of instinctive reaction, almost a reflex action. The courage of the man confronted out of the blue with a crisis to which he instinctively reacts with gallantry, scarcely having time to think. Many a man has become a hero in the heat of the moment. There is also the courage of the man who sees the grim thing approaching far ahead, who has plenty of time to turn back, who could, if he chose, evade the issue, and who yet goes on. There is no doubt which is the higher courage, this known, deliberate facing of the future. That is the courage Jesus showed. If no higher verdict was possible, it would still be true today, to say, true to say of Jesus today that he ranks as the greatest hero of them all. So true. So true. It's one thing in the face of sudden danger, in the heat of the moment, to respond in a courageous manner, and that is commendable. It is quite another thing to make choices in life that will bring you opposition, that will bring you difficulties, choices that will invite hostility to your life and yet be determined, resolved to carry out those choices in a way that glorifies God. That is even more commendable because we naturally choose what? Comfort. We naturally choose complacency. We naturally choose what is easy. And yet God calls us, beloved, to be courageous Christians who make choices that glorify Him that are right no matter what the cost or what the price ahead. Our Lord Jesus is the perfect example of that. As Christians, we've been called to, make, to be Christ-like in courage, to be willing to make choices that glorify God, brothers and sisters, no matter what the cost may come. What are the choices you're making today or you've made as a believer because of your commitment to Christ that you are paying the price for today? What are the choices you've made because you want to follow Jesus and because you love Christ? You and I are called to be courageous in these, to be courageous. Men, we're called to be courageous. During very difficult times right now in our country. But we're called to be as men courageous as we lead and love our families, providing spiritual shepherding, spiritual perspective for our families. You're called to be courageous in that. Ladies, you're called, if you're a wife and a mother, you're called to be courageous as you love and care for and serve your family, as you help and support your husband and the family. And in life, some of you need courage to trust God for your future education, for your present job and career. Some of you need courage to go into a hostile culture, into the future as a young person, so that you might be salt and light. You need courage to stand biblically by your conviction, so you better know what you believe, young person, especially in this day and age where it's becoming more and more difficult to make a stand for biblical Christianity. You better make sure that you know what you believe by conviction so that you're willing to pay the price and the cost of standing by those convictions. You need courage to do so. Some of us need courage as we're facing what seem, what seem, from a human perspective, insurmountable challenges. 
We don't know how this is going to turn out well. Maybe those challenges are in the home. Maybe those challenges are in your marriage. Maybe those challenges are in your parenting. Maybe those challenges are financial in nature. There's the uncertainty of the future that you're facing. You know what? God can give you the courage to trust Him during those times. And all of us need courage to make a bold stand for truth in a world, brothers and sisters, and country that's in love, that's fixated with self-worship, idolatry, and falsehood. We need courage to stand in the truth. But this courage won't come from within, will it? It's not going to come from anything that we can self-energize, something that we could produce within ourselves. We are weak people. We are vulnerable, you see. We live by grace through faith in Christ Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And so we will not be able to produce courage from within. This is why God tells us to be courageous in Him. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul exhorting Ephesian believers, Christians, about spiritual warfare, says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Courage comes not from within, believer. Courage comes from plugging into the divine source, the infinite reservoir of power who is Almighty God, you see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, we're told this, Believer, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Literally, be strengthened. By whom? By God. Be strengthened by the Almighty God. And in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, you remember the story faced with the daunting task now of taking over, leading the nation of Israel after the great leader Moses is, 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 is dead. God says to Joshua in Joshua 1, chapter, uh, verse 9, Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. See, to display courage is to be like Christ. Is to be like Christ. And no one was more courageous in his resolve, in his determination to go to the cross than our Lord Jesus. He's not dragging his feet. He's not reluctant about knowing what he needs to do in Jerusalem. Luke 9.51 tells us that when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, Our Lord Jesus left His eternal throne above with the full knowledge that if you and I were to have hope for the forgiveness of sins, He must come into the world and die for sinners such as you and I. And He did it. Praise God that He did. Amen? Praise God that He did. This is the Lord's resolve. Secondly, secondly, I want you to notice the revealing of the Lord's suffering. The revealing of of the Lord's suffering. The Lord discloses here what's to happen to him in the future to his disciples. And by the way, this isn't the first time that the Lord has openly spoken of his future suffering to his disciples. 
If you look with me in chapter 8 and verse 31, look there in chapter 8, verse 31. It says there that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus is in an ongoing conversation with his disciples about his future suffering. And there in chapter 8, verse 31, what you have is the bare bones minimum of what's to happen to him. Then later in chapter 9, verse 31, notice there with me in verse 31 of chapter 9. It says that he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. There Jesus expands a little bit on chapter 8, verse 31, on what's going to happen to him. And he hints at the fact that he's going to go to the cross by way of betrayal when he says that the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And then here, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, the Lord now really details His suffering. But notice, He does it specifically only to His disciples. Because it says in verse 32, that again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them, the twelve, what was going to happen to Him. He took the twelve aside. This is the case every single time. Every time Jesus speaks openly, explicitly about His suffering, it's only to the inner circle of His disciples in private to prepare them. Because more than anyone else, they needed to be prepped, privy to the future events, to what was to take place. And so it's only to them. And the Lord gets very specific here as he reveals his upcoming suffering to his inner circle of 12. Notice in verse 32. It says that he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, in other words, pay attention. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. Son of Man. It's our Lord's favorite self-identifying title. Over and over again, when Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, it's as the Son of Man. Over 80 times in the Gospels, the the title Son of Man appears and only used of Jesus. What does it point to? It points to his humanity. It points to the fact that the eternal Son of God humbled himself by becoming a man, came to earth, became like one of us, And he humbled himself all the way to the point of being a suffering servant, all the way to the cross and dying for sinners. Son of man. I want you to notice that there are eight verbs in these verses that describe the future events about to take place. Eight verbs, eight action words, if you will. He says that the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Eight action verbs in total here. Seven of them are actions by his enemies against Jesus. And one of them is an action by Jesus himself, namely his resurrection, that he himself will rise again. These actions come to us in four sets, if you will. And the first one 
is that the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. What does this refer to? That he's going to be delivered, but to his betrayal. That he's going to be handed over by someone. And the question is, by who? And Mark chapter 14, verse 10 tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve who went to the chief priests in order to betray him, betray Jesus to them. Our Lord's words came to pass. And that one of his very own, one of the very men that he spent time with, that he cried in front of, that he did amazing wonders and miracles in front of, that he cared for and fed and gave to drink and, and was the recipient of Jesus' amazing teaching, Judas Iscariot handed him over to be betrayed. He delivered him over to the Jewish authorities. This was in fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 41 and verse 9 David there in Psalm 41 and verse 9, 1,000 years or so before Christ, said this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Surely that's speaking first and foremost in that historical context of King David first, who was betrayed by many during his lifetime. But ultimately, it foreshadowed the betrayal of our Lord. A thousand years or so before it actually took place. So there was fulfilled prophecy. Listen, no human, no person who was just a man could foretell the future like this. No person who was just human could talk about the future betrayal except one who is more than human, namely one who is God. And that is who Jesus is. He's God in human flesh. Now, the second set of actions against our Lord, notice in verse 33, are that they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles there obviously are the Romans, but the they there are the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews of Jesus' day. Their supreme court, if you will, of the Jews was the Jewish Sanhedrin. Later on, we're going to see that that our Lord underwent Three trials by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they, having illegally tried and unjustly condemned Jesus, would then hand him over specifically to the Roman authorities after three unjust trials. So this too came to pass. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 15 and verse 1, it says that early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that's describing the whole Supreme Court of the Jews, if you will, immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Everything Jesus foretells comes to pass. It comes true. He would then undergo three trials before the Romans, before the Gentiles. And so the third set of actions against our Lord in verse 34, notice the Romans, the Gentiles, would mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Our Lord subjected himself, brothers and sisters, willingly, by choice to the greatest Shame. This is God in human flesh. 
This is the one through whom the universe was created. And he subjected himself to mocking and spitting and scourging and ultimately death. He gave up his life. I want you to be gripped today with the reality once again that our Lord Jesus suffered great ridicule, great embarrassment, great shame, great belittling, belittling at the hands of the Roman authorities for you, for your sins. They mocked him and spit on him. It doesn't get any lower than spitting on somebody, right? This is what our Lord underwent for us, for you, sinners saved by grace. For you, sinner who hasn't turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Jesus underwent this so that you might trust in Him as your Lord and Savior and be reconciled to God. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 16, Listen to what it says. Mark 15 and verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort or the whole battalion. Everyone's going to be part of this shaming of Jesus. They dressed him in purple. That was the color of royalty. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Again, beloved, this is God in human flesh, the eternal son of God. Undergoing this type of suffering for you and I. Back in verse 15, it says that Pilate had our Lord scourged. Scourged. Scourging was a form of excruciating torture. They would take a whip with leather strips attached with, with sharp pieces of metal. And when, when that whip would hit your back, it would take with it pieces of your flesh with it. And I remember seeing that movie, The Passion of the Christ, which many of you saw, I'm sure. And I disagreed with various aspects of that movie. But one thing that was fairly accurate was the type of torture that Jesus underwent, especially the scourging part. I mean, I couldn't even watch. I had to close my eyes. And yet that is very real. But what our Lord went through for us, sinners who deserve only hell and condemnation apart from Christ. Finally, notice at the end of verse 34, they killed him. Killed him. This was death by crucifixion. We know this. And crucifixion was a form of slow public death. It was a form of slow public torture. And you know why? Because the Romans wanted everyone in their day and age to watch this slow, painful execution so that all would be reminded who were going by and watching these executions by crucifixion take place, all would see this and be reminded of what awaited them if they rebelled against the Roman Empire. It was a scare tactic to terrorize people from rebellion against the Romans. So it was excruciating. 
Now listen. What our Lord Jesus is foretelling here is what happened, what was fulfilled, and what, beloved, listen to me, makes the gospel possible for you and I today. There is good news in a bad world because Jesus suffered and died for sinners and for sins. That's why there's good news in a bad world today. He died for sins. And it wasn't just another death. Before Roman times and during Roman times and post Jesus' earthly life, there were literally hundreds and thousands of people who were crucified on a cross and went through that torture and excruciating death. Jesus' death was completely different than any of those deaths. The Bible tells us that it was a substitutionary death. That he died in the place of sinners because he didn't deserve to die on that cross. He died by substituting for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. It was a propitiatory death. A wrath-removing sacrifice. It was a propitiatory death. Jesus on that cross took upon our sins upon himself and the wrath of God for our sins in our place and satisfied the justice of God. It was an atoning death. Jesus paid for sins. He paid for our debt, the debt that we could never repay God. It was a redemptive death. Through his death on the cross, Jesus bought us from the domain of darkness, from slavery to sin, and purchased us who have believed in him for himself so that now we are children of God and brothers of Christ and the, the recipients of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. It was a redemptive death. Surely this is good news in bad times. Amen? Good news in bad times for the greatest of sinners in this world, beloved, including ourselves. Good news. But notice that the fourth and final thing we're told is that three days later at the end of verse 34, he himself will rise again. This too came to pass. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. Go there with me. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1 says that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him, anoint Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. How do you like to be amazed? And then they tell you, don't be amazed. Right? Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, pay attention. Here is the place where they laid him. In other words, Look, watch, he's gone. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, 
He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Isn't that amazing? He rose from the dead just like he prophesied he would. This is what I'm going to do. Three days later, I'm going to die an excruciating death. But three days later, I will rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. Christ rose. He kept his word. He fulfilled prophecy. Listen, many great leaders and rulers and kings may have lived and died and from a human perspective accomplished some great things, but their graves are with us and they are no longer with us. Jesus rose and he lives. He is an exalted king. Amen? And he's coming back. And he's our hope. And in chapters 11 through 16, they're all focused on Passion Week. We're going to get an opportunity to get into the very details of this final week of our Lord's life. Fascinating stuff. That's going to grip our hearts and drive us to worship and to love Him and to serve Him and to want to tell others about Jesus. But what I want to challenge us with right now is that as we read and reflect on all that our Lord Jesus went through, Can I ask you right now, what's your heart's response to what Jesus underwent? What's your heart response like? Have you become so accustomed to reading passages like these, to reflecting on what Jesus underwent, that you are so indifferent to what Jesus went through, you're so passive, and your heart is no longer gripped by the truth of Christ? What's the condition of your heart right now as you hear this? Because for us as Christians, this is why we celebrate communion, right? Tim Townsend led us in communion last week, which is a commemoration, a remembering of the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because we are hard-hearted people. And we so easily forget what our King went through for us. And so what do we do at the Lord's table? We're reminded together as a corporate body of Christ's sufferings and His death. And we reflect together what He went through for sinners like us. Oh, brother and sister, may I encourage you and exhort you, don't become cold and callous and indifferent to the cross of Christ. Return there every single day again and again and again to be reminded of what Christ did for you, even though you do not deserve His grace, but hell and condemnation. That should humble us. J.C. Ryle writes, quote, Let us always bless God that the gospel sets before us such a Savior, so faithful to the terms of the covenant, so ready to suffer for us, so willing to be reckoned sin and a curse in our place. Let us not doubt that he who fulfilled his engagement to suffer will also fulfill his engagement to save all those who come to him. Great words. For those of us who are Christians, our hearts should be driven to worship, to serve, to love Christ when we read passages like these. Because can I remind you guys that the first reason, the first primary reason why Jesus went through all of this was because of His love for you and I. His love. Love for the unlovable. 
Love for the undeserving. Love for the unworthy. Later on in the upper room, Jesus would say to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. And what's the motivation? Just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. How did Jesus show us how much he loved us? By his death on the cross, right? By his death on the cross. He sacrificed himself, not because we deserved it, but because of his grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. That's Paul's way of saying, listen, people won't even die for good people, let alone bad ones. And then Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Such is the love of God. The greatest evidence, the greatest manifestation, expression of the love of God, Christian, is seen at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The suffering and the death of Christ was where the justice of God and the love of God came together for sinners like you and I. By punishing Christ, God's holy justice was satisfied. And by faith, we are now the objects of God's love. Not because he swept our sin under the rug. Not because he turned a blind eye to our sin, but because God punished his own son for our sins so that we might be the recipients of his grace and his blessing and his love. Because of Christ, praise be to God, beloved. Amen? Good news in bad times is the gospel. Jesus suffered and died a gruesome death because he loves sinners, even the worst of sinners. So that if you're sitting here this morning and you haven't given your life to Christ, you haven't committed your life to Jesus, you haven't been reconciled to your creator, listen to me, today can be the day of salvation for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you, who went to the cross to die for sinners such as you and I. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Abandon self-trust. Abandon love for self and self-worship and self-idolatry and worship Jesus. Kiss the son. Worship Him. Bow the knee to King Jesus. But if you can believe it, not only did Jesus die because He loves sinners, but there's an even greater reason why Jesus underwent His suffering and His death. Ready for this? It is the glory of God His Father. The greater reason why Jesus suffered and died, as he has articulated here to his disciples that he is about to undergo that death and suffering, is because of the fact that he came to glorify his Father, to carry out the Father's will. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Why did Jesus come supremely? To do the will of the Father and thus glorify God. And in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him, God the Father, who sent me and to accomplish His work. You want to know what fills me? You want to know what fulfills me? You want to know what satisfies me more than anything else? Jesus says, it's to do my Father's will, is to accomplish His purposes, to carry out His plans here on earth. And that He did all the way to the cross. In His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus is speaking to His Father, to God the Father, and He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. Throughout His ministry, the Lord Jesus constantly spoke of His supreme motivation, brothers and sisters. It was this, to give God glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God was Jesus' mission. It was all about the glory of God. And you know what? As Christians, we're called to walk in the steps of Christ. To do everything for the glory of God. We are called to walk in His steps and that the greatest priority of our life should be to be well, be, be well pleasing to our Heavenly Father who has saved us in all that we do. So how do we do this? Just look at Christ. Look at Christ. If Christ laid down His life and thus gave God glory, then we should be glorifying God by doing the same for one another. Laying down our lives for our families in our home. Laying down our lives for the brethren. Laying down our lives for people who don't know Christ, that they would come to know Christ. If Christ served us and continually serves us as our high priest, then how much more should we too serve one another and thus bring glory to God the Father? Sinclair Ferguson writes, Let us not only accept Jesus gladly as our Redeemer and Advocate, but gladly give ourselves and all we have to His service. Surely if Jesus cheerfully died for us, it is a small thing to require Christians to live for him. So true, isn't it? In all that we do, like our Savior, our greatest priority should be to bring glory to God. This was the turning point for me and my personal testimony. I'll tell you that right now. Age of 17, I was a fairly moral, externally speaking, teen. I wasn't doing all the stuff that other teens were doing. I would always be comparing myself to other kids who had grown up in the church or who weren't, hadn't grown up in the church. I was very moral on the outside. I wasn't following after what some of those kids were doing. But I knew what was in my heart, that I was full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside where God could see and other people couldn't see. But you know what the greatest question that I was asking myself at the age of 17 as God was drawing me to himself Am I doing any of this that I'm doing in my life for myself or for the glory of God? And you know what the answer was? It was for myself. It was for self-worship. It was for self-idolatry. Rather than living out my purpose for which God created me to live for His glory and enjoy Him in this life and forevermore. 
Maybe that's you today. You know that you're living life for yourself. There hasn't truly been a reorientation from the inside out where it's no longer about you, but it's all about, Lord, here's a blank sheet of paper called my life. You tell me how you want me to live my life. You tell me what you want me to pursue. You tell me what kinds of things I should be desiring from your word. Here, Lord, it's a blank slate. Write it down. Is that the disposition of your heart today? Is it about the glory of God and pleasing him? Or is it about pleasing yourself and worshiping yourself? For Christ, all the way to the cross, his suffering and his death, it was all about the glory of his Father, being well-pleasing to God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And Colossians 1.10 encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Here it is. To please Him in all respects. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1 says this. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know the verse, don't you? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, say it with me, do all to the glory of God. May that be our heart's true response to this message, beloved. That it would be all about the glory of God. That perfectly describes Jesus our King, doesn't it? Even in the verses that we just read here, His suffering and death, He did it all because He loves us and most importantly, for the glory of His Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for Christ. Thank You that in a world full of bad stuff, sin and rebellion, that we have the hope of Jesus. He is the Gospel. The person and the work of Christ is the good news. That sinners can be made right with you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of the gospel on mission here in this world. And help us to proclaim this Christ who is the only hope to a desperately sick and dying world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.